good afternoon. Welcome to the panel. RNZ National, a lot of uh, actually uh, feedback about uh, whether or not a three days bereavement leave is enough or not. So we will try and come back to that. That was um, Cindy Mitchell, as I've been thinking. Anyway, a report of a breakdown blocking the eastbound lane of State Highway 29 Kaimai Rangers. Please drive with care. Follow directions uh, of response crews in the area. We will keep you updated. Well, Prime Minister Chris Hipkins has welcomed uh, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese to Aotearoa. Uh, Albanese's first official visit to New Zealand since he became Prime Minister. His trip to Wellington marks a year of anniversaries, including 40 years of the closer Economic Relations Free Trade Agreement, C-E-R, 40 years. Here is then Prime Minister Robert Muldoon. Signing this document marks the end of three years of intensive work to lay the foundations for a closer economic relationship between Australia and New Zealand. Yeah, back in 83, 84, two-way trans-Tasman trade was worth around $5 billion today, around $30 billion. And this year marks 50 years of the trans-Tasman travel arrangement, 80 years of diplomatic representation. Uh, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese said he was pleased that it was easier for New Zealanders to become Australian citizens as of this month, and more than 10,000 had already applied to do so. With us is Fiona Cooper, the New Zealand Director of the Australia New Zealand Leadership Forum. Fiona Kiora. Kiora Wallace. Yes, I had memories of this um, CER. It's almost in our DNA, isn't it? Well, yes, 40 years is a long time, and there was a risk, I think, that it has been so successful in growing trade and investment between our two countries that some people might think it's done and dusted, you know, it's yeah. done its job. And I suppose that was that was at the heart of why the Australian New Zealand Leadership Forum met in Wellington last week uh, to celebrate CER and the tremendous benefits it's brought to both countries. But even more importantly, to look to the future. What can we do to make sure that CER remains the revolutionary agreement it was when it was signed uh, for the next 40 years? Because so much has changed in that time and, you know, agreements need to evolve to remain relevant and useful. And is it relevant or is it lopsided to the Australians' favour? Well, that's interesting. We did some research in the lead-up to the forum and found that in some areas Australia has benefited uh, more than New Zealand uh, in terms of you know, value-added trade. So I think that's, I think that's a... Um, uh, you know, a red herring. There, are, there have been clear benefits to, to both sides. But, you know, there was so much more to be done. And the forum came up with numerous recommendations last week, which we delivered to the forum. And then we awaited with trepidation uh, their announcement yesterday. And we are delighted. OK, well, let's bring our panel in, Cindy. So do we think that the word economic keeps it um, in too straight a lane, closer economic relations? Because if you think about the broad sweep of life, etc., we're, we're getting closer in a whole lot of things. It's not just economic relations. It's political attitudes. It's social attitudes. Um, I mean, is it time to change the name? And, you know, I, I think actually... We New Zealand is is leading the way in a lot of things. I mean, Australia's been so far behind with climate change, hasn't it? Is it is it 
could we broaden the name and the aspiration? Closer economic and cultural relations, Fiona. Well, um, CER, I guess, is shorthand for a lot of things because uh, the agreement has expanded. The, the range of the agreement has expanded. And you're right. I mean, now we are very focused on the importance of Indigenous inclusion. And we do want um, CER to be leveraged uh, and this bilateral Indigenous collaboration arrangement that was signed a couple of years ago, you know, to promote Indigenous economic advancement. And that is a pillar now under this work program because uh, yesterday the Prime Minister's announced a roadmap for the trans-Tasman relationship out to 2035 and it's got five pillars. So um, I think that probably does cover uh, what your panellists mentioned, that that broader array Mm -hmm. of shared interests Uh, and not just Indigenous inclusion, climate change, you know, wasn't really a thing 40 years ago. I mean, well, I bet it was a thing, but we weren't really talking about it. Uh, And now we have uh, so much uh, shared interest and so much that we should uh, be doing together. Um, And the seamless trans-Tasman border, we've been talking about that for years. Finally, they've committed to concrete steps to making it easier to travel between the two countries. And that's that's going to benefit business, it's going to benefit tourism, going to help productivity. So one, one listener uh, has said, well, in that case, we should be one country. Let's not start that. We've been there before on the panel. <laughs> so be shush, shush. <laughs> and we were actually, weren't we, in the 18-something or other? Weren't we a state of Australia? Territory, well, have, a territory. We had, the, we had the opportunity, but we yeah. chose not to All go right, there. Chris, yeah. yeah, I'm just wondering how relevant the E is of the CER yeah. these days. When you know a lot of the focus in recent years has been on free trade agreements with you know China and other places, and then there have been things like FTP and um, that that have been been talked about with with various other you know, jurisdictions. And from what you've said there, there are a lot of other things than just the E, the economic stuff, mm. which are now part of this agreement. Well, that's right. And I think there's a risk of expecting an agreement to do too much. I mean, Australia and New Zealand cooperate in a whole range of areas in international forums and the World Trade Organization, these various trade agreements that you mentioned. We don't have to jam everything into CER. It's important that there's cooperation, you know, across the board. So, you know, I I think that the instruments that we've got are are satisfactory. I was going to say, Fiona, is it fair to say the our relationship with Australia, it's been rocky in recent times. I mean, some Kiwis have seen themselves as second-class citizens there, for example. Australia deporting New Zealanders who've lived there their whole lives. They didn't even know about New Zealand. Um, is, it, is it on a better footing? Absolutely. I, I would say that the relationship's never been better. Um, and I think that the um, the Albanese government is to be commended for um, changing its policy on people-to-people issues. You know, it's created pathways uh, to citizenship for New Zealanders in Australia. That was a long-standing, you know, irritant in the relationship. Um, and I think they've got a more nuanced uh view now of these Section 501 um, deportations. I mean, it hasn't gone away, but I think they're looking at it more on a case-by-case basis. So I really feel that Australia has listened to New Zealand in that spirit of friendship and partnership, and I I think real progress has been made. But Fiona, to be fair, it would be pretty silly 
if we we weren't in a close relationship with Australia. If you look at our geographical proximity and you know the range of similarities uh, uh, across societies, it, I mean it is basic logic that we should have a strong business relationship, given our similarities and geographical proximity. You're absolutely right, but I don't think we should take it for granted because there are many countries with, who are much closer together than, than, than Australia and New Zealand and they have terrible relationships. You know, it's not something we can take for granted. We have to, we have to keep working on it. I was struck uh, at dinner last night, Prime Minister Albanese talked about the importance of trust in the relationship. And, you know, it's those shared values, our shared history, um, you know, I think all that stuff is, is really meaningful. And at a time when the world is becoming increasingly complicated and, you know, the global economic and strategic environment is not benign, uh, it is really important that we have a, a super close Very relationship. Good. Fiona, Fiona, just one Fiona, last just question briefly, in there. Yeah. Um, in your analysis of, of, of how things have, have gone um, over mm. the 40 years, where was the imbalance? Because I remember, I think it was in the 80s, that there was grumbling about um, from film and television producers that it was very lopsided in Australia's favour? Well, I mean, you know, CER has grown trade to, you know, 29, 30 billion in two-way trade. I mean, whatever's happening between the governments, business keeps doing its thing. And it's an incredibly important market. And I think I think business has just quietly gone about taking advantage of what the CER framework has provided. Nice ones, Fiona. Thank you very much for being with us. That's Fiona Cooper, the New Zealand Director of the Australia-New Zealand Leadership Forum, 40 years of CEO. And speaking of two countries uh, disliking each other, I was reading that... um uh, on the ratification of CER, uh, Malcolm Fraser and Robert Muldoon didn't do it because they hated each other <laughs> personally to such an extent that they refused to ratify the agreement if the other one was there. So there we go. Good old CER, eh? Uh, the panel, RNZ National, someone says it's getting too easy to cross the ditch. Uh, it's getting tough to keep a small business going here. It's easier to get Aussie citizenship and is a serious option to sell Move to Melbourne, says Greg. 17 past four. Well, there's a new upmarket six-star green-rated building at Tetihi in Auckland. Very sharp. But the layout of the firm's new leased building shows a post-lockdown shift in office behaviour. And Gibson in the New Zealand Herald writes, more breakout rooms, collaborative spaces, a whānau area, a semicircular wood bench, cushion seating meeting area called the campfire and 70% of your old office floor, floor plan taken up by desks in the new offices just 35% does it represent a fundamental shift from now on will part of your work be from home with your small bar heater and your cat is this now the way? Professor Jared Ha is Dean of the School of Management at Massey University. He is Fellow of the Royal Society of Te Aparahi. Professor Ha, welcome. Kia ora. I've got to say, Professor Ha, I'm actually loving the design of this building uh, when I'd be just as happy here with a beanbag. Um, is this building symptomatic of how offices and office spaces changing? I, I think definitely yes. For um, you know, 
highly paid professional star. Oh. So I think I think that's that's probably the one caveat we should slip in there. They've they've spent at least a couple of million is the estimate in that in that news article. So you know we've got to put that into context. Um, you know, median salary workers probably aren't going to get uh, their their employer spending that much money on their workspace. But uh, if you want productive highly skilled workers, that looks like a great way to do it. Yeah. Um, nonetheless, is, and we, look, it is fair to say we've t- touched on this before, but this really prompted me this article where I saw that the uh, a desk space nearly halved. Is working from your house, if you are an office worker, is this now embedded in society? So my data, I, I've been kind of following this for the last three and a half years. Um, and I, and if anything, maybe the the hybrid work uh, option is has shrunk a little bit. It's it's still well over, kind of about sixty, you know, sorry, forty six percent. So um, that, that's sorry. Let me rephrase that: thirty six percent. So that's kind of a hybrid or or working from home permanently. Okay, thirty six percent. Yep. Yeah, it's astronomical compared to pre COVID. Stats New Zealand told us it was less than kind of three percent doing this on a frequent basis. So oh, wow. um, the okay. workplace really has changed. I think we'll find, um, you know, especially professional companies that have skilled workers, they are looking for an edge to to keep workers focused and productive and stay at their company instead of going off to the competition. So. I think there's all those kind of dynamics going on at the yeah, moment. Yeah, they're up in the game, and they're uh, and this is a ex- exemplary of this beautiful bullying. That's amazing, Cindy Michener. Three percent work from home pre-COVID gen- generally to around thirty percent, six percent now. That is, that's quite amazing. Well, I mean, you know, COVID was the catalyst, wasn't it? It was enforced on people, and so they they did it, and it it is very suitable. But they for haven't a lot gone of people. back. People haven't gone back. Well, so. <sighs> Not every industry is the same. I mean, I work mainly in marketing and communications, um, and the advertising agencies, the good ones, have, you know, part of the buzz is being there. It's it's seeing the other people. It's throwing the ideas around. Table tennis. Yeah, well, the table, the bar, or you're allowed to say that, but, you know, whatever. But the, the excitement and the environment and the interpersonal reactions, you know, they're really great agencies. You want to be there. You want to be there. You want to be there. Stay there, Jared. Chris, we kinda. Oh, I'm just a little bit caught on having an office that has something called a fire pit. That's don't tell me that unless I can actually light a fire. <laughs> the campfire. The yeah. campfire. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. No, I think there has been a change. I see that, and it, it's certainly. Uh, um, we we recently had a change in our business where um, the new uh, director is much younger than us. She's got a she's got a two year old, so sometimes having to work from home is is much more. Um, yeah, it just works a lot better. She can still do it and still does a very very good job from there. And now we've all started thinking, well, uh, oh, actually, maybe there is a little bit more flexibility in, in in doing the the nine to five or the nine to six that we used to do, and everyone has to front yeah. up. And you know, um, has our productivity gone down? No, it's probably gone up a little bit. Okay, well, Sean's not a fan. Wallace, that does not sound like a workplace. That's the primary school. Uh, I blame 
open plan learning environments for the snowflake millennials, uh, says Sean. So Sean's got an issue with the open plan. Finally, Professor Ha, what other, while we have you here, what other workplace shifts or patterns can you uh, anticipate happening? Well, that's a good question. One thing I would like to add is I ask those who are working from home, if your company changed the rules and said, no more working from home, got to go back in the office, 70% said they'd quit. So, um, you know, so, so that really highlights oh. where, you know, the, 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 the at least one third of the workforce that are doing this kind of regular um, working from home. Um, I, I still think we've got a big COVID hangover. I still think as much as it, you know, let's be honest, COVID is, is not largely around. It's not largely in our conversations, but I do think we're still getting hammered by it, um, particularly in the research I'm doing around well-being, for example. I still think the well-being of the workforce um, is still being impacted from COVID. And we kind of haven't had a chance to recuperate. So I do see that as kind of a, you know, something something that worries me uh, on on the horizon. And I, I'm kind of hoping we can, we'll get over it. But, you know, it has already been kind of three years uh, and counting since our first lockdown. And I still think as a, as a country, um, in the in the workplace at least, there's still kind of major issues around well-being. Good to have you on the program, Professor Ha. Kia ora. That's uh, Jared Ha there, uh, Dean in the School of Management at Massey University. Before we go to our next topic, which is um, uh, the moral obligation of grandparents to look after their grandkids, um, I, f- I want to address an issue on the panel today, and that is what Cindy Michener said in her I've been thinking that three days bereavement leave is not long. She gave the name of a gentleman who passed away, uh, died suddenly, and uh, family very upset. Three days to bereave. I did did ask them first if I could mention his name. No, that's fine. But um, look, when I worked, a lot of response, that's the the reason why I'm bringing it up. When I worked for a Fortune 500 company in Sweden, they flew me back to New Zealand when my father passed away suddenly in 2008. Within one hour of letting my boss know what happened, he was calling me from the back of a cab, telling me I had the first flight out the following day and take as long as I need. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, that's that's the sort of empathy that is needed, I And think. there's another one. I'm driving along to pull over and cry. Like many small business owners, I work myself to death, to the bone, to keep my 17 staff in jobs. Like many, I draw no regular wages. How do we accommodate more leave? By the way, no bereavement leave for me. It's so sad that many commentators have no idea of the reality of business. Well, I do. I mean, you know, I run my own small business. But I think that they're probably very, I mean, you know, I'm I'm sorry you had to pull over and cry. But I think that there's probably a stretch past three days in most businesses through contacts, through um, family, whatever. I Particularly, I'm not necess- I'm not suggesting you know your third cousin dies and you get six weeks off. I'm saying that the ability to have the compassion for what is absolutely life changing. You can't you know just going back to normal after three days seems very harsh. And we all respect that a small business has to, but sometimes profit doesn't come first. 
We'll come back to this tomorrow. Three days briefly. Is it enough? 26 past four, but to this, and a big response to this as well. Uh, uh, is it acceptable for your parents to go and have a holiday in Taormina, Italy, when they should be looking after your kids? Take them to the playground, going to the library. One mum labelled it as morally poor for grandparents to refuse help with childcare and said that these days parents were not stepping up for their grandkids, despite the rising costs of childcare. Round the panel on this. Uh, Chris Bukata, you first. I think there's two aspects to it. One is, you know, should they? No, that depends on your family dynamic. I certainly know of instances where it is absolutely in the best interests of a grandchild for the grandparents not to have anything to do with them. Now, I know that's not usual, but in this case, it, it, it absolutely is. Um, yeah, I... Should there be an obligation? No, I would hope that there would be. You know, one of the greatest regrets of my life was my father didn't live long enough to meet his two grandsons, mine and my, no. my sister's boy. Absolutely breaks breaks my heart because mm. um, he would have been wonderful. He would have, you know, he, w- he would have been an absolute joy to their lives. But it's all on circumstances. And if your parents don't want to do that, maybe it's something to do with your attitude. Sydney. Well, Chris, I I agree that is all on circumstance. I mean, they say it takes a village to raise a child, and there's a range of cultures where the extended family is an integral part of raising a child. But I think in this instance that it's outrageous that she says, oh, my parents should be doing this, you know. Her parents raised her. I mean, I think. But you know, what a better place to be than with your grandkids. Why, well, why would you go Because you've got to, to have your own it? life. You know, what life? You don't, you've, got, you've, you've had, had... You've got your grandkids. Uh, but your grandchildren should not necessarily be the only thing that you have in your life. You want a rich and full um, existence, whether you're 60, 70 or 80. I'll tell, tell you what, it's rich, a privilege a to rich, see them. A rich and full existence is taking your grandkids to the local library. Not um, if you have to, nine to five... Five days a week. I, I agree. I mean, I would love to have take grandkids to to the local library, but I you're do being not, selfish. Uh, <laughs> no, I do not think that you should be obliged to do it. It's something you do out of love, not because you feel you have to. Yeah, big response. Uh, out of love, grandparents will support their children and grandchildren, and yeah. I would expect children will support their parents, says Peter. Um, is it acceptable that parents should be required by their adult, quote-unquote, yeah. children to sacrifice in perpetuity their sunset years to them and their needs? When does the duty to honour the debt they owe to their parents kick in? Here, and the, here. And the child proves itself adult. Yes, absolutely right. right. This is about a, a giving and taking in a loving environment. It's not about you should be doing this. You're on the panel, RNZ National. We have Chris Bukaira and Cindy Michener.